Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is a Bloomberg Wall Street Week roundtable discussion of what happened to our banks. I'm David Weston, and I'm delighted to say I am joined by our special Wall Street Week contributor and former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers, also of former Fed Governor Dan Tarullo, and Stephanie Flanders, our very own Senior Executive Editor for Economics and Government. So thank you all for joining us. Really appreciate it. There's a lot that's gone on in the banks in the last two weeks. We heard it from Jay Powell, the Chair of Fed, yesterday. So let's talk about exactly what happened. I want to start with you, Dan. Uh, you were a colleague for several years of Jay Powell. During the time you were on the Fed, you had responsibility for bank supervision. We've been told the banks were so strong we didn't have to worry about it. Were we misled? What happened here? We didn't think we still had banking problems. Well, I, I trust that the largest banks truly are in the much better capital and liquidity position that Jay Powell referred to yesterday during the press conference. Um, we don't David obviously know yet the whole story, but I think there are some things that we do know. We know first that there was a significant supervisory failure somewhere along the way. Was that failure in the um, uh, San Francisco Fed's inability to identify problems of growth and maturity mismatches and the like early on? Was it the failure of the second San Francisco Fed team to, which did identify some problems, to follow up in a sufficiently robust way? Was it a supervisory failure because of the light touch approach to supervision that the Federal Reserve Board had put in place over the last four or five years? Or was it a supervisory failure because the supervisors generally had not adjusted their method of assessing liquidity? to take account of very high uninsured deposit concentrations coexisting with the capacity of big depositors to run at warp speed rather than the way they used to run. Those are not mutually exclusive explanations. And I also would not rule out a contributing factor being 
the 2018 legislation and 2019 Fed regulation, both of which deregulated banks of under 700, well, the regulation banks of under $700 billion in assets, the legislation banks of under 250. But I think in the in the most immediate sense, this is clearly a supervisory failure. Other factors may be uncovered as the Fed's own investigation proceeds. Dan, do we have a sense of how big the bread box is, if I can put it that way? Uh, what is the likelihood this could spread to other parts of the financial system? We heard Chair Powell yesterday saying that Silicon Valley Bank was an outlier. Dan, how do we know it's an outlier? I, well, that that's a good question, David. And you know, one you, your correspondent, Bloomberg correspondent uh, Katarina Sareva asked a really good question in the press conference yesterday. She looked back at the notes from the January 31st, February 1st FOMC meeting and noted that there had been a discussion of the potential financial stability implications of the rapid rise in interest rates, which the Fed has engineered over the last year. And she pointed to some specific areas of concern which the FOMC had identified, one being <laughs> runs on non-bank institutions, a little bit ironic in retrospect, uh, but also the position of banks with large portfolios of treasuries that had not been marked to market but had lost value, obviously, because of the interest rate increases. And she she asked the chair for a little bit of an explanation of what that discussion had been, and he was unable to give it to her. For me, it raises the question of whether they were monitoring just those kinds of issues throughout last year as they were increasing rates. I mean, you would think that interest rate risk would have jumped to the top of the supervisory heap uh, and that the FOMC would have been getting reports on the impact of the interest rate increases on deposits, deposit flows, holdings of securities, especially those that are not marked to market. So I think as a backward-looking matter, it will be interesting to find that out. As a forward-looking matter, has the Fed, in since a week ago Friday, done the kind of assessment to be able to tell Jay Powell, you can go out and say that it's an outlier and the banking system is safe? He didn't indicate that any such assessment had been done. Perhaps it has, perhaps it hasn't. Maybe Vice Chair Barr will talk about it next week for Congress. But right now, our basis for um, evaluating his statement is kind of limited. So, so, Larry, let's put you back at the Treasury or, for that matter, at the White House. If you were looking at this situation, what questions would you be asking to make sure you understood the possible ramifications of what we've seen so far in a broader financial context? Before I, answer, before I answer that hypothetical, let me uh, put a question to my friend uh, Dan, who I'll just say I think did an enormous amount to strengthen our financial system during his time at uh, the Fed. Dan, I've heard it said, and I don't know, that even in 2022, the Fed stress tests that were applied to the largest banks did not include an analysis of the stress from a major interest rate hike. If that's true, that seems kind of bizarre from the point of view of the world of early 2022, when it certainly many people, certainly me on David's uh, show, were emphasizing 
that there was likely to need to be very substantial increases in interest rates. Can you say something? And if the stress tests weren't considering increases in interest rates, then perhaps the exempting of Silicon Valley Bank from the stress tests was not central to understanding the problem. Can you say something about interest rate hikes and Fed stress tests? Sure. Um, so first off, I, I think, Larry, I agree with the, the uh, statement you made toward the end of your question, which is I act, if, if Silicon Valley had been in last year's stress test for real rather than its stress rehearsal, I don't think it would have made much difference for precisely the reason you say, that they weren't stressing the things that were the SVB vulnerabilities. With respect to stress testing generally, over again, over the last five or six years, the stress test has become eminently predictable. The scenario that's used is now a single scenario, which is essentially a variant on the very first one we put in some years ago that is a severe, a quite severe recession. Um, but it follows the basic pattern of the scenario that was developed when we began doing the annual stress test. The um, scenario, of course, includes a reduction in interest rates because of the uh, hypothesis of a recession and the Fed's reaction. When I was at the Fed, we were using also an alternative scenario. It's called the, the adverse rather than severely adverse scenario. And we use that scenario to test things other than the prototype of the severe recession. And indeed, we used it at least one year and I think a couple of years to test what would happen with unusual changes in interest rates, which were not then anticipated. So to some degree, the answer to your question is, like supervision generally, the stress test has become less rigorous over time. And I think, more importantly, it's become too predictable. And the whole purpose of a stress test is that you're trying to stress against the unanticipated, not the anticipated. At the risk of perhaps being too tough on your former colleagues at, uh, at the Fed, you talk about predictable versus unpredictable. I would argue that at a very minimum, the stress tests ought to consider what is the major risk of their moment. When you were at the Fed, uh, Dan, in that period, I think it was reasonable to think that the major risk was a tilt towards recession and deflation. But I don't see how anybody last spring could have thought that the major risk was anything other than a spike in interest rates. So a process that didn't consider as a risk seems to me to be a profoundly problematic uh, process even if you were to accept that you were only going to look at one scenario and uh, all of that, it, it seems almost like the supervisors were mailing it in if they weren't thinking about at a moment when monetary policy was turning in a dramatic way towards tightening and at a moment where the Fed had just retired the word transitory, we're not looking at interest rate hikes. Is there a reasonable, is there a defense? Well, I, I, I would say first, um, 
this is not by way of defense or certainly not an apologia, but just a bit of explanation. It's, it's quite likely that the scenario development was, was taking place in the latter part of 2021, um, if it was going to be the 2022 stress test. And of course, this is the period in which the FOMC was still figuring out that the inflation problem was not transitory. But I, I don't want to use that as a kind of exculpation of uh, the supervisors. Second thing to say is it, it's not the supervisors, meaning the staff, who are making the policy decisions as to what kind of stress test to have, whether to have multiple scenarios. That's a decision of the Board of Governors. Uh, and so it rests with them. Uh, and the, and, and I, I, but I agree with the gravamen of your remarks, which is not to have tried to think about something other than the same scenario is a failure of supervision in and of itself. Stephanie, you've worked at the Treasury sure. of the United States. You also have covered financial markets and other business issues over in Europe for a good long time. One thing we're hearing from both Larry and Dan is rates were going up, and they weren't just going up here, they're going up over in Europe as well. Was what we're seeing right now in the banking system, maybe not the specifics of Silicon Valley Bank, but was something like that almost inevitable? After we pumped so much money into the system and start taking it out, there's going to be stress, real stress, and there's gonna be some failure. Yeah, and I, I wish I was, I was closer to you guys because I knew I was going to struggle to get a word in with you too. But uh, I think in, the, in this conversation, I think it is important when we're thinking about what the implications are, you know, you have to distinguish what is an outlier about not just Silicon Valley Bank, but others that have got into trouble in this episode. What is fundamentally uh, a regulatory stupidity, you know, a very traditional problem, the interest rate risk that was just hiding in plain sight. Uh, and what is a genuinely new issue which was not being fully taken into account by anyone looking at the, the, the risks. And I think when, when you look at something like Silicon Valley Bank, you know, clearly it was an outlier in the speed with which deposits had been built up, in its massive exposure to unex uninsured deposits and reliance on that um, for funding. I hope it was an outlier in not having a chief risk officer for nine months, which was an extraordinary um, state of affairs. What was, but what was very traditional about this, and as, as the discussion with Larry and Dan is, is suggesting, was that you know, right here was a massive interest rate risk that was, whether or not it was in the stress test, was something that central banks should have been thinking very hard about. And I think it was sort of striking that we had a lot of the debate around this. What are the hidden risks? You know, all the conversations that you would have had, David, when you ask regulators what's keeping you up at night, they would always talk about private equity. They'd talk about non-bank shadow banking has been the thing that people were you know, was, the, was this worry for all these years. And in fact, it was the most obvious problem sitting on bank balance sheets as a direct result of monetary policy actions by central banks that has actually caused this issue. I would just say, though, one of the reasons maybe they weren't looking at that so closely, although I'd be interested to know what Dan and, and Larry think about this, you know, there is an element of this which is new. And we see in the speed with which deposits left these institutions. And that's the, the non-stickiness of those deposits. And I think, you know, one of the things that regulators were thinking when they looked, considered interest rate risk potentially, was that there was a sort of um, self, a, a self hedging mechanism um, in a bank of the fact that deposits would be slow to move if they weren't being paid the higher interest rates. That is no longer the case. And I think that probably does have longer-term implications for, for regulation and potentially longer-term implications for how much we insure deposits. 
Yeah, I think there's a question for either Larry or Dan. Uh, does our entire approach to deposits change given what we've seen? The fact is they're not as sticky as we thought they were. That's what I was alluding to earlier. I'd, I'd, I'd like right. to have a sense of exactly what the right. deposit profiles of this group of banks is as a whole, because right. in theory, at least, the supervisor should already have been distinguishing among different kinds of uninsured deposits, some of which yeah. have always been understood to be eminently runnable, others of which have thought to uh, were thought to be at least somewhat stickier than uh, insured retail deposits. Right. If it turns out that those, and this is what Stephanie, I think, was suggesting, that those middle categories are uh, have changed, then we're going to need a change in regulation and not just in supervision. Larry? Let me, let me, let me sort of widen the frame a little bit. Um, without, I agree with what uh, Dan said, but I would put it uh, this way. We know that the Fed staff has a problem with discontinuous change. They basically entirely missed the discontinuous change in inflation because they stuck with their model and its traditions. And I think the broad concern that someone has to put is that for the first time ever, we are now in a world of highly digital banking with the ability to withdraw funds extremely quickly and with the ability to put them somewhere else extremely quickly and easily because of digital account opening. So we're in this super digital world, and we're in a super digital world with 5% interest rates. And we've never been in a high interest rate super digital world before. And large amounts of the economics of the banking industry rest on earning substantial interest premiums um, on uh, deposits. And Whatever the traditional models are of what's sticky and what's not, the fact that we've had the world's fastest run and the world's biggest run at one of at the 16th largest bank in the country managed to have the biggest bank run in history has to teach us that there's a lot of reason to be open to a much wider range of possibilities about the risks associated with deposits uh, than uh, we thought previously. And so it seems to me that you asked me earlier what I would be thinking about if I was in the Treasury Department, and I guess I would be feeling my responsibility as the chair of the Financial Stability Oversight Council very strongly at a moment like this, and I'd be thinking about making sure that Whatever I was saying and doing, I was adding to uh, confidence rather than uh, subtracting uh, from confidence in the very short run that if you're in an institution and that institution fails, it's going to be okay for you if that happens right now. Because if you're not sending that signal in a reasonably clear way, you never know where the runs are going to start next. I'd be thinking about this issue that I just raised of uh, the new high interest rate digital world. And I'd be thinking about um, 
making sure that uh, there was some broader discussion of the whole official financial community about these questions of uh, stress testing, because I must say doing stress testing for 2022, even if it was started in 2021, without considering unusual increases in interest rates as a stressor is really very problematic. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Uh, so I want to pick up on this, the speed of digital just for a moment. Uh, it's been talked about by others as well. Digital's not going away, at least <laughs> not that I can see. It's not going to, we can't, we can't uh, regulate digital out of existence. Are there other possible regulatory responses to that? I mean, we have circuit breakers when it comes to the stock market, right? If there's too much move too quickly. Stephanie, I'll ask you the question. Is there a prospect of having something that's the equivalent of a circuit breaker for deposits? I think, I mean, I think there's a whole range of things we could get into. I think one could also think about you know, the degree of, you know, how we look at liquidity ratios and liquidity buffers might have to change if, you know, there is that lack of, if there's lack of stickiness, if we think that those deposits could go much faster. You may even get, I mean, a number of people have drawn the conclusion, it's quite a leap from here, that this is one of the biggest arguments for having a central bank uh, digital currency, because then you can automatically have uh, a claim on on the central bank for your deposits, and you you you're, you're, you don't face any of these issues. It's a big leap from where we are now, and it means a fundamental change to to the model of banking that we've had. But I think you know Larry is right, and that was one of the things I was alluding to that it is it's a threat to the basic business model of model of of banking, and also to the way we have thought about safety nets in this area and how one provides confidence. David, I would just I would just add two things. Uh, one, I think we need to be careful about the time scale of things. It may be that it will be appropriate to fundamentally rethink the structure of our financial system, but the worst time to do that would be in a six-week period while the fires were burning. And so we need to separate the what are we going to do now tactically 
from the longer run strategic uh, questions. The other thing I'd say is that I agree with Stephanie about strengthening liquidity. Dan will be very knowledgeable about exactly how you would do that. But I would uh, dissent massively from the idea of circuit breakers on deposits. If you start saying that when certain things happen, then you're no longer going to be able to get your money out of the bank, what that's going to do is accelerate the run because people are going to want to make sure that they get their money out before the circuit breaker uh, comes down. So I don't think there's likely to be a circuit breaker mechanism that works. And I think there's a lot of debate about the merits of the circuit breakers we have in equity markets. So that would not be the direction I would build. So, so Dan, let me accept uh, Larry's very strong dissent from circuit breakers and turn it all the way around the other way. And that's guaranteeing deposits across the board. We had the Secretary of Treasury, Janet Yellen, go up to, to Congress this week and say, you know what, we're not really considering seriously just taking all the limits off the guarantees. And then she came back the next day and said, I have to amend my remarks a little bit here because we're going to do what we need to do to back deposits. Are we getting a clear message about exactly the security of deposits, secured by the federal government? Well, I, I mean, I let people judge for themselves whether the message is clear. Here's what I drew from what both Janet Yellen and Jay Powell have said over the last 48 hours. Um, they do not have the authority without congressional action to ensure the deposits in open banks. Uh, what I think they have done is effectively to say the following. We do have the authority, along with the FDIC, to ensure previously uninsured deposits in failed banks. And so what we are basically telling you is, if a bank fails, we will ensure the uninsured deposits. Um, and I, I take it that that's what Jay Powell was really saying yesterday when he said, all deposits are safe. And when he was asked to elaborate on that, he just repeated the talking point. And that's when I inferred that, that this was the message that he was trying to give. And if you think about it, if that is indeed their position, if you think about it, it's, it's essentially the same as insuring uninsured deposits because even if you said ex ante, all these big deposits are insured, no one would actually draw on that insurance until the bank had failed. So in that sense, it, it may be the equivalent of um, the, the uh, insuring of all deposits in the system except for the fact, of course, that it's presumably a, a policy that will not last forever. And when are they going to kind of back off of it um, is, is a, obviously a pretty important point. The second thing one might say, and I can already, I can feel Larry maybe having this reaction is, if that's what you mean, why don't you say it more clearly so that you will maximize the calming effect of whatever tool it is that you're prepared to use? And I, I don't know why they didn't say it more explicitly, except perhaps that they didn't want to intimate that somehow they were using the authority they do have to achieve an end that supposedly they can't achieve uh, without congressional approval. Dan, I think there's one other, I think there's one other point. Uh, certainly, and you may have parsed the statements more closely than I did, but some of the statements, particularly I think from the Treasury side, have talked about contagion as well. So I'm not sure the authorities have been quite as clear as you suggest in saying that if you've got money in a bank and that bank fails and it's not a source of contagion, you will 
nonetheless um, have your deposit insured. And as I understand it, in order to pay off uninsured deposits, there need to be some set of claims made by the government about the systemic seriousness of the moment. So I think that is also a place where there's some play. But I think I would share what I think is your instinct uh, to be erring on the side of projecting confidence as one's choosing the way in which one talks about this. I mean, the contagion, to, to reference contagion, sends the message that is exactly what a lot of depositors are quite reasonably doing, which is like, OK, I need to get into a bigger bank. So just to, just to spell out why that matters, if you, ref, if you make it all part of a contagion argument, you're not giving that confidence to people who are in the relatively smaller banks, although it's still pretty big banks by European standards. Well, I think, I think if I were at the Fed now and we were trying to formulate a rationale for what I suggested a moment ago was the um, likely policy, even though it's not stated explicitly, I think I would probably say something like the following. Look, six weeks ago, if there had been a failure of a $2 billion bank somewhere, insuring uninsured depositors would be a very hard case to make on systemic risk grounds. But at this juncture, even if a $2 billion bank fails and an uninsured depositor is not made whole, in the current circumstances, the anxiety, the nervousness, the uncertainty, that itself will add fuel to the potential systemic fire. And thus, in these circumstances, one could take the action there as well. You do, as a statutory matter, need to make the systemic risk argument, though. That is the authority that they have. Uh, and I think Janet Yellen did make reference to small banks yesterday as well. Uh, Dan, I want to pick up on your comment. If you were still at the Fed, we had a decision from the Fed this week to raise another 25 basis points. Some people had been urging that actually they just hold, given the difficulties with banking. At the same time, he, Jay Powell, admitted that there's more uncertainty about the extent to which what's already happened with financial conditions may have essentially a, a, imposed a further rate hike already. Did they get it right, Dan, from your point of view? Did Jay Powell get it right? Well, I mean, it's a, it's a very obviously arguably the most difficult decision since he's been there, although I actually think market expectations helped him. They, they had sort of converged around 25 basis points, and so then it became a communication issue. Um, I mean, what I was struck by, David, in on the monetary policy side of what he said yesterday was that he, he, he said quite explicitly, it's too soon to tell how monetary policy should respond to the anticipated credit tightening. But I actually think their actions yesterday were a fairly significant response. I mean, everybody, three or four weeks ago, people were anticipating a 50 basis point increase. We got 25. Three or four weeks ago, we thought we might see the SEP suggest uh, a, a ceiling of 5.75 or 6% interest. And now we're back to exactly where they were in December, uh, last December when they did the last SEP. Uh, and of course, they changed the language on the uh, the, what what the forward guidance type language instead of ongoing increases we're back to may have some firming and of course some people are reading that as the end or close to the end of the of the uh, tightening cycle so I actually thought that um, they were conveying uh, more of a, an assessment of the impact 
than Chair Powell suggested in his remarks yesterday. So, Larry, what about you? Uh, in the past, you've suggested perhaps they might have to have a terminal rate as high as 6%. Do you agree with Dan that what we saw from Jay Powell and the Federal Reserve this week was a monetary policy reaction to what we've seen already? And if so, was it appropriate? I think what they did was uh, broadly appropriate. It was a time for temporizing because there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of cards are going to be turned over in uh, the next uh, several months. And the question then was, does temporizing mean stopping all rate increases? And I think if they had done that, it would have sent actually a signal that they were very highly alarmed and would have been a mistake. Whether to continue precisely on the path uh, that they were on before these banking concerns arose, I think that would have seemed almost oblivious to what was a potentially gathering storm. And so I think, as Dan suggests, that a middle ground uh, path was right. And it was particularly right if the policy is going to be signaling in a clear way that uh, even if your bank fails, you're going to be a depositor as well. And so nobody in America needs to have the kind of sweaty palms weekend that a large number of people had worrying about whether they were going to meet their payroll because of Silicon Valley Bank. And I think in the context of providing those kinds of assurances um, that the monetary policy path they set was appropriate. And appropriate doesn't mean that it will turn out to be right. Appropriate means that the errors are kind of two-sided, that there's a chance that they'll need to tighten more than they're currently projecting. And there's also a chance that not all the tightening they're currently projecting uh, will be necessary. I think if authorities are sufficiently aggressive about adding confidence to the system. My guess, best guess is that the Fed's judgment in the SEP will turn out to be considerably more accurate than the market's assessment that the Fed is going to be pushed into rate cuts uh, very soon. But that's a, uh, a judgment that one can't have any great amount of uh, confidence in. But yes, I think what they did was broadly appropriate, particularly if we can be sending reasonably strong signals of confidence in the system. So that is going to conclude our Bloomberg uh, Wall Street Week roundtable, the first we've ever had, actually. I want to thank our panelists. She's Stephanie Flanders. She's the senior executive editor for economics and government for Bloomberg. Dan Trillo, former Fed governor. And also, of course, our special contributor on Wall Street Week, he's Larry Summers of Harvard. That's it for this edition of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg.
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.